This podcast is intended for entertainment and opinion. Nothing discussed is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis, please call 988 or use the resources listed in the episode description. To see the sources and other resources mentioned in this episode, you can visit psychologicallymindedpod.com. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming topics, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. And finally, please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to get new episodes as they post. Enjoy this episode! Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. I'm your host, Grace Fowler, and today is another mini-sode where I focus on a famous experiment in psychological history. And I'm going to be talking about the Stanford Prison Experiment. So if you have never heard of this before, this is a wild ride. And I will say that some of the description of the experiment may be a little tough to hear. So just kind of a quick content warning that there is some kind of graphic depictions of police brutality Um, over the course of this experiment. So just letting you know that up front. Another thing that I want everyone to know up front is that I have actually met Philip Zimbardo in person. And Philip Zimbardo is the researcher who designed and implemented the Stanford Prison Experiment. And I met him at a APA conference before the pandemic happened. It was the first one that I had been to when I had started grad school. And it was a really interesting experience because on one hand, you're like in the presence of, you know, a psychology great, right? Like a a household name in the field. And on the other hand, you're in front of an older person, an older man in the field who has a lot of opinions and not all of those opinions are something that I agreed with. So it was interesting. It's definitely an example of like never meet your heroes. I wouldn't say that Zimbardo is a hero, but like sometimes meeting people who have these like big um, reputations in the field is not necessarily the best experience. And I'll just say like he made some comments about how like there weren't that many men in the room, which it's like, Phil, read the room, my guy. Like the field has been dominated by women for many decades. Um, and I don't think that's a problem and you making it a problem is a problem for me. (laughs) Um, but I also will say that from meeting him and like attending essentially like a little talk that he gave, um, I do want to say that like he did work very hard in his career to kind of make up for the Stanford prison experiment. And most of his research actually has focused on, I guess more like the positive side on like what make he he uses the word hero a lot like what makes people be a hero um and he has started and researched some programs that like are geared toward kids and reducing bullying so I I think that overall his contribution to the field has been largely positive and that he's like pretty upfront about the Stanford Prison experiment trying to to kind of almost right the wrong of the experiment with the rest of his work. So I don't want anyone to walk away from this episode thinking that he's a bad person. Yeah, just because I have had that experience of meeting him. So take what you will, like maybe take all this with a grain of salt, take what you want (laughs) out of this. 
but that is, I think, part of what I'm bringing into this episode is having met the man and kind of heard some of his thoughts on the experiment himself. Okay, so let's talk about what the experiment actually was. So the Stanford Prison Experiment came out of Stanford in the 1970s. It was a research study that was designed to look at the behavior of people when they are put into the position of quote-unquote prisoner. And Zimbardo, who was, it was the head researcher, was actually largely influenced by Milgram's study, the obedience study that I talked about a few minisodes ago, like kind of looked at the conclusions that Milgram came to and was like, there has to be more here. There has to be more to understand, especially in the context of World War II and the Nazi party and the way that it like an entire groups of people were made prisoner in concentration camps. Zimbardo wanted to look at kind of what are these dynamics and wanted to look at it in a controlled environment and not necessarily in a environment like an actual prison where there would be variables that he couldn't control. So that's the like underlying basis for the study is he he wanted to look at the prisoner's behavior, not necessarily the guards, and he was influenced by Milgram's obedience study. So the research team starts to set up the study and they interview people who have been to jail or to prison. They interview prison guards, they interview lawyers, people involved in the criminal justice system. They interview a bunch of people to kind of figure out what are the variables that they want to have. And then they recruit 24 students to serve as the guards and the prisoners and split them up half and half. Now, as with Milgram's study, because this was research done in the 1970s, the sample size is not super diverse. They were all white men they all, and not all of them were graduate students or even students at Stanford, but many of them were and, or just lived in the area. And if you think about it, like 24 people is not that many people. So it's also like a pretty small sample size, which is another thing we look out for as red flags when looking at results of a study. And before I go too far into it, uh, I just want to note that if you are interested in reading the original write-up, Stanford actually has a version of Zimbardo's original manuscript for Scientific American on their like archive page. And I have linked it in the sources page because that is what I used for this episode. But I would really encourage anyone, especially who's in the field, to read it if you haven't already, because it's really interesting to see how people used to write <laughs> um, and how this study in particular is written about because it's very different than what like modern day papers might look like. After all this setup, right, they've interviewed people, they've decided what are the variables that they want to control, where are they going to set up the prison, and they set it up in like the basement of a building at Stanford, and it's over the summer so that classes are over, like nobody is going to be in this building and they can essentially do whatever they want. And they appoint one of the other psychologists on the research team to be the warden, and Zimbardo himself serves as the quote-unquote superintendent. So he himself is part of the study, which is a big red flag, because it is really difficult to maintain objectivity when you are part of the study. And so uh, this is something that we would not do in modern research, have the researcher be as involved in the study 
And that's usually why you use things like research assistants or confederates so that the main person, the principal investigator, is not themselves involved in the study in any way. But I digress. <laughs> so they, they have it. They've set everything up. They've recruited who's going to be a prisoner. But rather than telling people you're going to be the prisoner, they had them arrested by the real police, the like campus, the Stanford campus police. They had the prisoners arrested. They had them brought to an actual police station to be booked and then brought them to the what they were calling the Stanford County Prison and in, in the basement of this room and had them put in there and put on their like prisoner's garb. So the prisoners, the people who had been recruited and, and like con uh, assigned to be prisoners, did not know what was happening. They were under the impression that they had actually been arrested and many of them wrote letters to their family or tried to contact their families to ask for a lawyer, to ask for their bail to be paid. It was not a good time. The prisoners get to the, you know, this basement area and they put them in these smocks that look like dresses and they didn't give them any underwear. So they're essentially in a dress with going commando. <laughs> and that was done on purpose. And you can read this in the paper. It was done on purpose because it forced the prisoners to act more feminine. So that was part of the like denigration of the prisoners was to have them be dressed in would be considered feminine clothing. And then they were to wear these like bald caps so to simulate like having their heads be shaved. So the prisoners were supposed to all look the same. They were only allowed to refer to each other by their ID numbers. And they had really strict rules about like when they could use the bathroom. They weren't allowed to go to the bathroom after 10 p.m. So they'd have to use a bucket if they needed to go. They weren't allowed to eat in certain places. They weren't allowed to talk to each other unless they were um, like given instruction to or were in certain parts of the, you know, quote unquote prison. Lots of lots of rules. And the entire time they also had a chain wrapped around their ankle, which Zimbardo writes in the paper was so that they constantly had a reminder that they were being incarcerated because even if they were asleep and rolled over, the chain would rattle and wake them up and they, so they couldn't even like quote unquote escape in their sleep or through their dreams. So it's pretty, pretty intense. Um, and then on the other hand, the other half of them were um, assigned to be guards and the guards also wore the exact same outfits. They were given badges that looked like, you know, like correctional badges and they all wore reflective sunglasses so that it was impossible for the prisoners to make eye contact with them. And the guards are also instructed to only refer to the prisoners by their ID numbers. And Zimbardo actually was egging them on to be more brutal because the first like day, the people who played the guards were kind of hesitant and didn't really do much. <laughs> like, you know, they weren't like torturing people or interacting with them much with the prisoners and so Zimbardo was like trying to kind of egg them on and, and and push them a little bit farther to see what they would do now interestingly enough when the paper is discussing the variables that they wanted to control because they controlled things like when the prisoners ate went to the bathroom like you know down to some of these minute details they said that they did not want racism brutality and quote-unquote enforced homosexuality to be part of the experiment 
and it's not explained <laughs> at all in the paper and I haven't seen anything about it anywhere else. Um, but I do want to take a minute to kind of talk about that because underneath this study is the fact that there are people who are in real prisons, right? Like we don't need to create a prison-like environment. There are hundreds of prisons in, in the U.S. that we could look at for research. It's, it's hard to do research on actual incarcerated people because they're a protected class. And so you have to be really careful and go through extra steps in your IRB, but it's possible. And so it's like really crazy to wrap your mind around the fact that like Zimbardo went through all of this to design this experiment when we know that there are environments that already exist like this. And racism is a massive part of being incarcerated. It, you know, impacts who is arrested and convicted, who is sentenced to do actual prison time and not given probation or diversion programs. It influences like how people are organized in the actual prison and who has had done time before and maybe has learned certain parts of the culture. Like it, it just cannot, we cannot talk about prison and incarceration without talking about the fact that like black people and black men specifically are overrepresented and more likely to be incarcerated than like any other group in the US and um black and brown people in general are more likely to be incarcerated than white people in the US like racism is just built into the system and if you've never seen the documentary 13 this would be a good time to go check it out to see how from the beginning of like the the modern prison system in the US racism and an attempt to redo slavery has been built into it fr from the very beginning. So it's like insane to me that there's one throwaway line in this like foundational article that just says we didn't want to deal with racism. We we didn't want to deal with that in our controlled experiment. That wasn't a, a variable we wanted to look at. And they did control for that by only having white people and only having white men be in the study. So, and, and the other two parts too, right? Like the police brutality is part of it and did become part of the study in a way. So like they didn't do a good job of controlling that out. And I don't know what they meant by enforced homosexuality. I would imagine it has to do with myths and homophobia around people who are incarcerated engaging in like same-sex sexual behaviors so I don't I, I really don't know what to do with that um but I think it just like highlights that one you know Zimbardo was not as interested in these like systemic factors which is tricky when you're looking at a big system like incarceration and two doesn't consider these factors to be important that they couldn't possibly pay, play a role in how someone who is a prisoner would act. And I think that is a big, big glaring hole in this study. And that, of course, racism and brutality and even, you know, whatever this idea of homosexuality is, all of those things play a role in how one behaves in a prison setting because those things all come with like prescriptions for behavior like how do I behave how do I keep myself safe how do I go about all of this stuff so 
I know it was the 1970s. Um, I know it was like a different time and these conversations weren't being had as much. But I do want this modern day audience that's listening to this episode, I want you to understand that like particularly racism plays a big role in incarceration. Like like full stop. It just it plays a big role. And I'm happy to do an episode on that another day that I can expand upon it more. But it's just something that we do have to like keep in mind when thinking about this experiment and adds another layer to why the Stanford prison experiment is not a good indicator of what prison is like. Like I was saying, they've changed their outfits. Prisoners are all dressed the same. Guards are all dressed the same. Prisoners do not have names. They only have IDs. Guards have sunglasses so you can't make eye contact with them. Everyone has been very depersonalized and Zimbardo is pushing and pushing and pushing. Example of one of the ways in which the behavior from the guards started to escalate was that one of the things they were supposed to do every day was to do a count and that meant they had to wake up the prisoners. So the the guards time was split into three eight-hour shifts and the prisoners were there for 24-7 and at least once a shift a count had to be done. So that meant overnight prisoners had to be woken up and do a count and it when first started in the experiment the count would be like a few minutes where everyone just woke up set their id number and you know indicated that they were awake and present and as the days went on the count started to become longer and longer and the guards would make them do like push-ups would start to berate the prisoners for you know hours at a time and this behavior you know was escalated and was like shaped by Zimbardo and other members of the research team I believe too would tell the guards or the, pres- the would tell the guards specifically how to behave like before they came onto their shift. And so also that's another thing about this study is that the prisoners never got a break. They were there 24/7 again thinking that they had actually been arrested whereas the guards got to leave after their 8-hour shift. They got to go home. So I mean, that's part of like simulating it as as a prison, but think about just like the toll that would take on the people who got assigned the prisoner role. As the study went on, several people did have to be sent home for having like emotional breakdowns, very similar to what was described in Milgram's study where people, a few people became like, I don't want to say hysterical because I don't really like that word, but just like became dysregulated and had difficulty calming themselves down. So they had to be sent home um, due to it being you know, potentially a medical issue. And these were the prisoners who were having these reactions. The study, I believe, was only supposed to be going on for two weeks, but about halfway through, Zimbardo's girlfriend at the time, Catherine Maslock, who was a faculty member at Stanford as well, and they had started dating before the prison experiment. She had come to the building where the prison was held to help Zimbardo out by doing some interviews, since she was also a psychologist, also in academia. And she came in into the experiment and she saw that the guards were like um, chaining the prisoners together, like chaining them up in a line and marching them around and screaming at them. And she was absolutely shocked and like disgusted by what she saw. She darted out of the room and, you know, Zimbardo came after her and was like, what's wrong? And she was like, that's disgusting. I can't handle looking at that. I can't believe you let it go this far. You clearly are too far into this because you're participating as the superintendent and you have to end this now. And she basically said, like, she wouldn't help him and he needed to end it. And he was persuaded and he realized, like, 
uh-oh, this is not good. And so he ended the study early. Now, one of the sources on the source page has both Zimbardo and Maslock's account of this event. And Zimbardo's account makes it seem like it was less about her reaction and more about him just being like, we had what we needed. And her account is more like, you know, she had to really call him out. And I would tend to believe Catherine's (laughs) position over Phillips because he was just like too into it. He was in the study. He couldn't see outside of it. Um, And so after that concludes, he, he writes it up. And actually at about the time that his study was ended early, there were several prison riots that started happening around the country most notably at San Quentin and Attica. And San Quentin is the prison that's closest to Stanford. And so there were consultants on the study that had been to San Quentin or were currently in San Quentin. And there was a very intense riot that happened around that time. And so Zimbardo gets called to Congress to come testify about the results of his study and how that might explain how these prison riots were happening. I don't know as much about like what he testified to or what it did to change anything. It didn't seem to change anything because, um, in fact, our prison population began to boom after um, the 1970s. Like by the time we're into the 1980s, we've doubled our prison population and where we are today is astronomically higher. So I don't know if what he said, what his testimony did um, or, or what it changed, but that kind of solidified him being this expert on like prison environments and his conclusion was that it is the situation the environment of the prison that puts pressure on both the guards and the prisoners and that guards will become authoritarian and torturers and the prisoners will become like weakened emotionally cut off or mentally unstable people and that it is the environment and the expectations of the roles that that makes people change their behavior. Now, the tricky part is, is that because this study was such an absolute garbage fire, we cannot draw any conclusions from this study. From the recruitment, where apparently the flyers said prison study, so the people being recruited may have been drawn to wanting to participate in a prison environment to the, you know, lack of different identities, lack of different perspectives in the participants to Zimbardo and the research team themselves being part of the study. I mean, all up and down this thing, right? There's like problems. So end of the day, we cannot draw conclusions. So therefore, it's hard to say, like, if a study done like this could prove do does the environment and the roles change people's behaviors there have been some small attempts to replicate this study but it's just incredibly hard to replicate it because we can't do studies like this anymore the interesting thing is that a zimbardo study was approved by an irb and the irb and the apa reviewed his research methods again after the study concluded and both organizations concluded that his study was done ethically. However, like 20, 15 to 20 years later, um, a historian or an archivist, somebody was going through the archives in Stanford and found all of the original materials, which revealed that actually the methods were not what Zimbardo had originally reported to the IRB and were in fact probably less ethical and less robust. 
The study was not peer-reviewed, and the study was funded by U.S. Naval Research. So it was funded with military money. And a lot of this stuff, although maybe innocuous, does need to be disclosed when talking about the Stanford Prison Experiment. And if any of you has taken an intro to psych class, um, you've probably heard about this experiment and were told like very quickly about it of like, you know, things got out of hand and it just proved that like the prison environment and the role of guard makes people act like total fascists. <laughs> right? Like you, you may have been told that. And it may, that may very well be true that there's something about the role of guard and like wearing a uniform and referring to people by numbers that does pull for this like authoritarian way of acting. You can't make that conclusion from Zimbardo's study. It's just too messy. It's not peer reviewed. It's not well done. Yeah, it's just it's just too messy and there was too much harm being done to the people, much like in Milgram's study where it's like there was just not this consideration from the research team of how might this impact the people participating and if that impact is detrimental, how does that affect our results? And I think if this study had been done with either Zimbardo not participating or there being an additional um, observer or maybe group of researchers who were not participating in the prison part at all, maybe it could have gone better or ended sooner. But I really just don't think that it is a possibility to make this study go in a way that would be fruitful. I also have to say that I agree with other critiques that have been made of this study of that why did we need to create a prison environment when we have hundreds of them? There are so many prisons in America that you don't need to create one on your own to look at these dynamics. Like There's just so much observational data and there is enough differences across prisons and across like, you know, prison rules and standards that you could look at these different variables and be like when we have this in place versus that in place this type of training versus that type of training you know use of force allowed or not which type of force like what type of force uh, weapons or aids do correctional officers have you can do that with the the like sample size that we already have of you know two million people being incarcerated in the u.s it's all out there baby and as someone who has worked in an incarceration environment, has worked in a facility or an institution of the criminal justice system, you know, there, there is a lot about the environment that is built to control behavior. And I don't know if that means that it 100% excuses any of the behavior done by the guards or correctional officers that is abusive. In fact, I would go so far as to say, in, in my own opinion, that there is a lot that could be done to mitigate abuses by correctional officers that we don't do because we don't see incarcerated people as people. At end of the day. And I think that you could even make the argument that when Zimbardo and team were designing this study, they weren't thinking about incarcerated people as people. They looked at them as prisoners, as a different like type of person who is a prisoner. And that's a pretty big cultural attitude, um, at least in the U.S. And I would be curious to know what it's like in other countries. But at least in the U.S., like, there's a pretty big cultural idea of, like, what a prisoner is. 
And very often that idea is not of a human being who has made mistakes and maybe needs support and needs rehabilitation, but it is often this attitude or this perception of an inherently evil person who needs to be, you know, beaten down and segregated from society until they magically pop out rehabilitated or if they're not able to be rehabilitated, keep them in the box forever. And that is the unfortunate reality of how Americans see incarcerated people, um, which is a bummer because we have some of the highest po- population of incarcerated people. Like we've, we've got a lot of them in this country. And so thinking of them as like less than human or as deserving of the environment and the things done to them is really quite damaging. So all of that to say, in the Stanford Prison Experiment, there's a lot that's wrong with it. And the version that you may have been taught about it is not the full story. It is a fascinating story. I mean, even just like the idea alone of like Zimbardo's girlfriend showing up and being like, what are you doing? It's like, could we have had a woman on the team? <laughs> like, Maybe some of this wouldn't have happened if anyone else had been involved um, besides men. <laughs> there's just, there's so much to dig into. Um, and because it's a mini-sode, I won't spend so much time going over it over every detail, but I hope that I've given you a good enough summary of kind of what happened. And I hope that you can see how these foundational studies like Milgram and Zimbardo really did build off of each other um, and really are such a product of their time. And it will be interesting to see how we look back at psychological research, you know, from 10, 20, 30 years in the future, how we look back on this era Um, And what we will say is like barbaric about how we do research now. Um, So, you know, I don't want to go too hard on Zimbardo because like I said, I really do think that he dedicated a lot of his career to contributing to the field in a different way that, you know, maybe makes up for, for this experiment. And I think that we can still critique it um, and understand that really there's, there's really no conclusions to be taken away. From the Stanford Prison Experiment. It just isn't a well-designed study and doesn't really have any conclusive data that we can use. Most of their data, too, was um, just like observing tapes and recordings of what had happened. There wasn't a whole lot of like measurable data aside from purely observational data. So brief summary of this experiment and thesis statement is that it is a trash fire and we can't conclude anything about anybody's behavior from this experiment. It's a wild, it's a wild read if you want to read through the whole thing. Um, I'll link it in the sources page as well as the article I was reading that had Catherine Maslach's description of her her role. And with that, I just want to say thank you as always for listening all the way through the end and I'll see you in the next one. Bye-bye.